Okay, the readings from Acts chapter 17, reading from 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoll philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this blabber trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aeropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Agropeus, sorry, and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all of the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thank you, Dee. So today we're um, going to look at the gospel brings passion. 
And, um, but before we do that, I just want to recap on last time. You might remember uh, we looked at Acts 15 and how the gospel brings freedom from the burdens and demands placed on us by the law of Moses. So under the law of Moses, you had to obey every command and it was a, was a weight upon us and that's how salvation was obtained and it just is crushing. And I think all of us know what that's like when we, when we try and try and try to obey what we know is right and we fail and we fail and we fail. And it's, <laughs> it's a um, really crushing experience. And the gospel uh, that Paul uh, preached brings freedom. It's about grace. No longer do we have to um, adhere to all these rules and regulations that God designed to be impossible to keep anyway. Um, now we live in grace. And in response to the, the love and grace that God has shown us, we want to obey him. We want to please God. And, uh, and that keeps us in a grace is, is very um, humiliating <laughs> for our human pride and ego. And that's exactly the way God intended it to be because we have to rely on him for our goodness and righteousness. So now we move on to Acts 17. And uh, so once again, Paul is expanding his ministry. So remember the arc of Acts goes, um, it's like what Jesus said, um, that the disciples will be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So now Paul has reached Athens, and Athens is the start of modern-day Europe, which is, for a Jew, would probably be the start of the ends of the earth. So, um, and we know that Thomas ended up going to India, the other direction of the end of the earth. Um, and so truly uh, Jesus' um, instructions and, and um, commands, uh, the, gods, the, the disciples were carrying out, especially Paul. And at the time of Paul, Athens uh, had statues of 30,000 gods, 30,000. <laughs> you might try and keep 30,000 gods happy. <laughs> Very difficult. Um, there's a, one of the ancient historians said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. <laughs> 30,000 gods. So, as, as we saw, this was a journey of acceptance for the early Jews. Um, they thought the gospel was for them, you remember, and then it was for the Samaritans, the half Jews, and so on and so on. And now the gospel is cast to the ends of the earth for everyone. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting in verse 16. So Paul enters Athens, and he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Greatly distressed. And the Greek word here for greatly distressed is, man, this is a tough one to say, paroxino. Paroxino. From para, alongside and oxus, a sharp edge. So to cut close in alongside with a sharp edge. <laughs> right? So uncomfortable um, to incite or to jab someone to stimulate their feelings. So it's, it's a... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a strong, very strong emotion. And uh, in other words, Paul became emotionally provoked, uh, upset, and possibly even aroused to anger. So why was that? 
because all of these beautiful statues and figurines, and has anyone been to Greece? And you've seen all the magnificent um, statues of the gods and everything, they look amazing, beautiful works of art. But in the time of Paul, they weren't just works of art, people actually worshipped them. So you can imagine, so Paul, his whole life has been under the shadow of the Ten Commandments, right? You should have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth or beneath or in the waters below. You should not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing your children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is what Paul grew up with. So you can imagine his horror, I guess, to walk into Athens and see <laughs> this, these command, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, not only broken, but broken 30, at least 30,000 times. Now, we normally think of jealousy as a sin, right? Um, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And yet, here in Exodus, God clearly says he's a jealous God. What does that mean? That's a strong feeling, isn't it? Uh, jealousy. Jealousy is a very powerful, and we think of it as a bad, a bad thing. But in the Old Testament, the word for jealousy that is used to describe or attributed to God is different from the word for jealousy that's applied to humanity. Interesting, eh? <clears throat> so when we use the word jealous, we use it in the sense of being envious of, of someone who has something that we want like a Tesla, for example. <clears throat> Just plucking that one out of the air. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah. But when it's used to describe God, it's not that God is jealous or envious because some, someone has something he wants or needs. It means that people who make idols and bow down and worship those idols are giving to the idols worship that belongs to God alone. So God is, the, is possessive of the worship that belongs to him. And I found um, a commentary that said, Jealousy is a sin when it is a desire for something that does not belong to you. But when you are jealous of something that belongs to you, it's entirely appropriate. That's interesting, eh? So an example is you're at a party with your wife and, and you're talking with someone else and you see another man start to flirt with your wife. Right? <laughs> now, if that happens and you don't feel anything, have you go, oh, okay, and keep talking with whoever you're talking to. What does that suggest about your love and your passion for your wife? You'd have to question <laughs> whether there's much there, right? <laughs> right? But if you feel jealous, right, that you're the only one that can flirt with your wife, not anyone else, right? That's that is right and good for a man and a woman, for a husband and wife, to do that kind of stuff. It's not something that, that anyone else is supposed to do. So in the same way, God's jealousy is like that. God sees what, what uh, we, he created us, we belong to him. It, it, it's like when we worship idols, we flirt with those idols. We, we give those idols worship that belongs to God and God gets jealous and fair enough, right? Just as a man is right to get jealous of someone who flirts with his wife at a party. 
So there's two powerful things at work here. There's truth. This is truth. And then there's love. Truth and love. The truth is that the people of Athens are idol worshippers and deserve to be punished because they broke these commands. But they are absolutely passionately loved by God who jealously desires them for himself. So truth and love. Both very powerful emotions. So these two things are raging in Paul. Truth and love. And when we share the gospel with others, we need both emotions, don't we? We, need, we have truth to share. But if we only have truth, we become judgmental and condemning. And perhaps in the past, um, a number of Christians were perhaps guilty of that. And, and me too, I must add. <laughs> Sometimes I, I can get... You know, I mean, I, I identify with this feeling, right, of anger when I see... Um, my own country um, turning away from the Lord and it's easy to become judgmental and condemning we need love too love, a concern uh, a desire to see others come to know the Lord and, and be saved but if we have only love there's no repentance is there? Oh, I just keep on doing what you're doing, God loves you anyway that's not the gospel that's not the gospel that Paul preached And in the cross of Jesus, you think about this, truth and love come together perfectly, don't they? Why was Jesus on the cross in the first place? He was being punished for our sin. He took our place. But the reason he was there was because of love. Truth and love come together perfectly in the cross. So you see, strong feelings lead to action, don't they? <laughs> like, like, think about, um, you know, if, you, if you've ever graduated and someone's talked about you know, what, what to do now. They say, follow your passion. You need, you need to feel something for, for you to pursue. Sarah's always saying, telling me, I spent five years studying to be a vet. Five years. You need passion to do that. I'm sure a few times you must have thought, oh, Flag this, and same with with you know with any of us who have uh, have done anything significant. You need passion, and, and there's a few times when you when you want to chuck it in. So it takes strong <coughs> passion, feelings to lead to action. So it's no coincidence that the suffering and death of Jesus is called the passion of the Christ, right? Strong feeling. The definition of passion is a strong and barely controllable emotion. That's barely controllable is like, <laughs> that's strong. It was passion that led Jesus to the cross, his passionate love for us, and it helped him endure it. And it was passion that led Paul to preach the gospel in Athens, firstly in the synagogue, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, and secondly in the Agora, the marketplace. <clears throat> In the marketplace. So this is not just like the Franklin Market. Okay? The marketplace of Athens. It was like, it would be like preaching the gospel to the professors at Harvard University. Right? Athens was the 
the cultural and intellectual seat of civilization. True, the, the, the power seat had, had shifted to Rome, but Athens was still the intellectual capital of the world. And it was here that Paul began debating with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Stoic. There's a, there's a guy in How to Train Your Dragon. Has anyone seen that movie, How to Train Your Dragon? The second one. Yeah, Stoic. Don't be so Stoic, Stoic. Remember that? <clears throat> yeah. Stoic. We'll discuss what that means soon, but I'm sure you, many of you have got a fair idea. So it's really interesting to understand... It's interesting that these, these guys are mentioned specifically, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So let's have a, have a brief look at what they believe because it's really important to what we're discussing about passion. Okay, Epicureans. These guys followed the teachings of Epicurus who lived about 300 years before Paul was in Athens. So it's already quite... Uh, um, an old, I guess, uh, philosophy, tradition. And Epicurus taught that the greatest good uh, is to seek pleasure. But it's not what you think. Okay? It's not what you think. If I say the greatest good is to seek pleasure, I bet you're thinking of wild parties and all that stuff that goes with them, right? That's not what he means. <clears throat> what, he, what he's defined as pleasure was the freedom from fear, ataraxia, and absence of bodily pain, aponia. So if you are free from fear and free from pain, then that's what Epicurus would call pleasure. Okay, so here's, here's what he wrote. By pleasure we mean the absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the soul. It is not by an unbroken succession of drinking bouts and revelry, not by sexual lust, nor the enjoyment of fish and other delicacies of a luxurious table which produce a pleasant life. It is sober reasoning, searching out the grounds of every choice and avoidance. That's the critical word there, avoidance. And banishing those beliefs through which the greatest tumults take possession of the soul. So Epicurus <clears throat> would say, look at your life. If there's anything that's causing you strong feelings, get rid of them. Get rid of it. Stop whatever is causing the strong feelings. So he's not a true hedonist, right? He's not advocating just doing whatever your appetites tell you to. He's actually proposing moderation on all things. Avoid the extremes. And he also advocated strongly against fear of the gods because a fear is like, will cause ataraxia, right? And that's what he's trying to get away from. And he also thought that all matter, souls and even the gods, so he wasn't an atheist, he believed in gods, uh, are comprised of atoms, which he defined as the smallest undivisible particle. And when we die, the atoms that composed us just return to the cosmos. So we just disappear into the cosmos. So death is not something to be feared because when we disappear into the cosmos, we, have, we will experience no more pain, which will be... Well, there'd be no more pleasure, I guess, either. So there's no afterlife for Epicurus. So to summarise, Epicureans try to avoid strong feelings and they withdrew from anything in life as much as they could because it helped in avoiding those feelings. And Epicurus deliberately stayed away from politics. 
as we all know, <laughs> politics cause strong feelings, don't they? And if you've been following the uh, American election at all, you will see um, politics cause strong feelings. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists. They believed that everything was God and God wasn't everything. And because of this, they believed that all things, good or evil, were from God, and so nothing should be resisted. Whatever comes your way, it's meant to be, so suck it up. So people should accept the course of nature, and if it brings suffering, then suffer bravely. Hence the name Stoic, which means a person who can endure pain or hardship without showing their feelings or complaining. And according to Stoic philosophy, any kind of loss in this world, no matter how great, ought not to trouble a person in the slightest. Any loss. They taught you can be happy no matter what obstacles or tragedies you might face by accepting all that happens to us in life and understanding that we are never harmed unless we believe we are. I'm not sure that's true. We can avoid suffering and live a joyful life. However, how do you get to this mythical place you had to renounce your passions how do you do this in practice you active if if you if you find something that's bringing you strong feelings you actively resist it okay so this is what he said this is a different guy Epictetus whatever objects give you pleasure call before yourself the opposite image what harm in me while you kiss your child and saying softly, tomorrow you may die, and say to your friend, tomorrow either you or I may go away, and we may see each other no more. Yeah, stoic. This is, what, this, is, this is how you suffer stoically. You actively resist passion. Anything that causes you passion, these are good things, right? Love for your children, love for friends. So when you feel those strong emotions, I I look at my own kids and I feel very strong passion for them, passionate love. Epictetus, the Stoic, would say, resist that. Push it away. So, it's interesting, eh? So Paul's filled with passion. He's in Athens, filled with passion. And what would the, these two schools have thought? What would these philosophers have said to him? What would the Epicureans have said to him? Get out of here. Run away. You being in Athens is causing you passion. And that's bad because that will cause you pain and sorrow. It is causing you pain and sorrow. But get out of here. Run away. That's what they'd say. Avoid. Go, go into a cave in the mountain. And leave all these Athenians to their own fate. What would the Stoics have said to him? Settle down, old chap. Stiff upper lip. I wonder if that's where the stiff upper lip came from, eh? The English stiff upper lip. Don't show any emotion. Resist emotion. No need to get carried away. Everyone ends up the same way. Atomised. Detach yourself from your passions. Resist them. What were the outcomes of these two schools of thought? We can see it in verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. 
So you can do that if you're not, if you, if you're not uh, inclined to take action about anything, right? If you if you you can discuss something important and you can, you know, <laughs> just sit around and talk. Never mind about doing anything. <clears throat> the Christian life does not call us to avoid passion or try to detach ourselves from the things we love so much that we can lose something we dearly love without feeling anything at all. That, that's a tragedy, isn't it? If you lost something you dearly loved and you were like, oh, what's on TV? This, there, there's a loss of humanity, I would, I would say. We've lost something, what it means to be human, in that mindset. Christianity calls us to see Jesus, uh, see the world as Jesus sees it, and to feel something of what he feels when he looks upon his world. And in that passion to go out into the world with him and reach others in his name. So Jesus didn't avoid strong passion, and he didn't minimize it. He let those feelings fill him and drive him to action. And that's precisely what it did to Paul. So if you read verses 22 to 31, you'll see how beautifully he presented the gospel to these guys. Truth and love. He called them to repentance. He, he called them to stop worshipping all the idols, but in a beautiful way. And he, it was clear that he had studied what they... He talked about their poets. So he'd read all their poets. He'd got his mind around what they believe. In fact, that beautiful verse, for in him we live and move and have a being, is from a Greek philosopher. If you, look, if you look at the reference. So he could quote their own beliefs back to them. That's how familiar he was with the Greek worldviews. The Epicureans wouldn't have done this, would they? Seems to me that their philosophy of avoidance would lead to selfishness. Like, and maybe, maybe that's why like, computer games are so dominant these days. People can play computer games for days. People have actually died playing computer games because they forget about drinking and stuff, important stuff like that. Right? It's, uh, isn't, it, isn't that an avoidance? You're, you're occupying a different world. Maybe, maybe our own world's too painful, so, so you avoid it by going into an imaginary world. And they would have never have put themselves in harm's way, because that would, they, you know, you want to avoid pain. Contrast this with Paul. How many, how many times did he almost die? How many times was he beaten and shipwrecked? and stoned and the Stoics would never have done it because to do what Paul did you needed passion and they would have actively resisted that passion and anyway if, we, if there's nothing after we die what's the point anyway why would you, why would you do anything other than seek pleasure for yourself even if that's not like hedonistic pleasure, that's just the absence of pain and potentially feeling. Christianity would say that the ability to feel things deeply is a gift from God that reflects what he's like 
we made in his image. God feels things deeply. Jesus felt things super deeply. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, remember? He wept. And that's perhaps why Christianity was so effective in displacing the Greek, these Greek philosophies. Right in three centuries, Christianity overtook them and displaced them. Tim Keller says that all of the Greek philosophies tried to relieve us of the fears linked to death, but at the cost of obliterating our individual identity. What is, what, think about the, what, is the, what is it about life that you treasure most of all? <coughs> Isn't it the ability to know and love other people? Relationship? Your parents, your siblings, your friends, your spouse... How could we not fear death if it meant the end of that which we hold most precious in this life? That would be like ultimately stoic, wouldn't it? Not to care about that. And, and I've seen some atheist writings that say, oh, well, when we die, we die. That's it. Well, who cares? Really? Is it that easy just to say, oh, okay. I'll never see you again. I'll never see my child again. I'll never see my spouse again. Oh, well, Really? Christianity offers something radically more satisfying. St. Ambrose, he was Bishop of Milan in the 4th century, wrote this. Let there be this difference between the servants of Christ and the worshippers of idols, that the latter weep for their friends, whom they suppose to have perished forever, that they should never cease from tears and gain no rest from sorrow, who think that the dead should have no rest. But from us, for whom death is not is the end, not of our nature, but of this life only, since our nature itself is restored to a better state, let the advent of death wipe away all tears. Our hope as Christians is that when we die, we are restored to what God intended us to be. It will be a wonderful thing. There will be no more tears. We will retain our individual identity. We'll be able to relate to God and to each other. We don't lose our individuality when we die. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity. But perhaps more than all things, the expression of the passion of Christ in serving the least, the last, and the lost was what won the hearts of the pagans. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, recounted how during the terrible plagues, Christians did not abandon sick loved ones or flee the cities as most of the pagan residents did. Instead, they stayed to tend the sick and face their own death with calmness. like Mother Teresa, isn't it? We look at her and we think, wow, that is beautiful. Her selflessness, her her serving, her willingness to put herself at risk. So, I don't know if you noticed, but but each of those philosophies has a kernel of truth. Did you notice that? We can, as Christians, we can say extreme attachment to earthly things can lead to excessive pain and sorrow. Right? If we desire money too much, then that's going to lead to pain and sorrow. If we desire sexual pleasure too much, that's going to lead to pain and sorrow. But the answer is not to love those things less, but to love God more. Okay? 
It's only when our greatest love is God, a love we cannot lose even in death, can we face all things with peace and hold our loves in this world in their rightful place. (coughs) So where does this lead us? Brooke Fraser uh, wrote, I can never say her married name, so I'm just going to call her Brooke Fraser. Um, wrote a song that we occasionally sing called Hosanna. And one of the lyrics of the bridge is, Break my heart for what breaks yours. That sums it up in terms of Jesus' call to us, doesn't it? But I wince every time I I sing that line. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Deep down, I guess I'm not sure I want that prayer to be answered. I naturally shrink back from wanting to love like that. (coughs) And I don't know about you, but when it comes to Jesus' call to mission and to reach out with his love to others, both of the philosophies of the Epicureans and Stoics are tempting. (coughs) Have you ever dulled and avoided the burden of the lost by distracting yourself through YouTube or Facebook or surfing the internet? Or watching something on Netflix or something like that. <clears throat> uh, that's, too, that's disturbing me too much now. I'll distract myself. I have. Have you tried to minimise your concern over the state of Western civilization and its rejection of the Christian narrative by telling yourself you're not responsible for what the decisions other people make and they're on their own? I have. <laughs> So what are we to do then? Worry ourselves sick about unbelievers in the state of the West? No. I don't think that would be a healthy thing to do and certainly wouldn't result in any positive action or glory to God. But Paul and Jesus before him allowed themselves to have strong feelings of care and love for the spiritual well-being of others without minimising or avoiding it. And they used it to change the course of world history. One guy said, <clears throat> you can tell if, if, if you're an influential person, if 2,000 years later, people, millions of people are still studying your, your writings. And here we are. Millions of people all over the world are studying the writings of Paul. <clears throat> if you didn't have passion, if you didn't have the incredible love for other people, if you didn't want to bring them the truth of the gospel, he never would have done anything. Would have probably gone fishing, which is not a bad thing either, I might add. Our own vivid vision for a bio church may not change the course of world history, <clears throat> but I pray in our own way we will all demonstrate to others that a belief in Jesus leads to acts of loving service as we seek to reach out to them and tell them about the love of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When we're serving others, we're actually serving Jesus. And that's why we serve each other, isn't it, in church. So this week, would you be open to the Holy Spirit and invite him to let you feel a little bit more for what he feels for his lost children? And if he leads leads you to step out of your comfort zone, and to talk to someone about him or to do something for someone else 
Will you ask him for the courage to do it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you made us in your image, able to feel strongly, passionately. Lord, we ask, Lord, I guess in trembling, that we would feel a bit more of what you feel as you look around the world. We know that you will always be with us, Lord. You will lead us and guide us as you have promised. Lord, as we seek to reach out and share your good news, both individually and as a church, Lord, would you give us that, that loving passion, the desire to bring the good news, the truth, to those that don't know you. Bless us, Lord, as we look outward. In Jesus' name.